It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is where we bring together a panel of the East End's award-winning journalists to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com, which, by the way, has gotten an update and is worth visiting now to see. It's a little better organized and more responsive. Do, do you agree? Bill, uh, yes, and, and much faster. And the uh, the the site search, which barely worked before, is really working well now. So yes, yeah, some we're, some nice improvement. We're very excited. We're very excited about the new website. Uh, it, it doesn't look drastically different, but I think it's but it's well, much it was, better. It was meant to incorporate um, Sag Harbor Express News, which formerly had its own website and is now part of Twenty Seven East. So it was that effort which has been successful. And while we were doing that, we uh, we tweaked it a little bit and made some other improvements. Yeah, I apologize for the shameless plug there, but it just was something that's been on our minds. And Bill Sutton is our managing editor and also our director of digital media. So he's been directly involved with the website stuff. He's my co-host as well. Uh, with us today are Denise Civiletti, the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise, good to have you. Hello, good morning. Christine Sampson, who's the deputy managing editor at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us. And Brian Cosgrove, who's the host of the Afternoon Ramble right here on WLIW. Uh, good to have you with us, Brian. Thanks. Quick disclaimer, I am not an award-winning journalist. I'm oh, well, one, yeah, I'm the only one who's not. I, I don't, but you're still award-winning. <laughs> we'll, we'll come up with the awards that we necessarily, if we if we have to, but you definitely are award-winning. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. Uh, affordable housing, always a conversation. Uh, we have a new report about the uh, fatal fire back in November up in Riverhead uh, that Denise is going to talk about. But I want to start with a, a, a vote that was taken this past week in East Hampton, Chrissy. Uh, the Whitmore Center uh, had submitted a petition to try and get on the ballot with the school budget vote this year, and it was rejected by the school board. Can you kind of take us through what what, what was that about? What was the petition for and, and why did the school board reject it? So um, this is actually let me start off by saying it's a very rare type of petition. You so citizens, residents in a community have the ability, according to state law, to petition their school boards to add their own propositions to the ballot and the budget vote. And, you know, I've been covering education for like, I don't know, the last 15 years on Long Island, and I have never seen this before. Yeah. It's it's similar to so Southampton School District does it, though, right? I mean, they yeah, so they have they have um, uh, funding for Parish Art Museum, um, SYS, Southampton Youth Service, um, the Town Community Center, that type of thing. So it's not totally unheard of, right? It's not totally unheard of, but, um, you know, those have been pretty well established. Right. And this would be the first time for the Eleanor Whitmore Center. So what happened is they submitted, they got the, the necessary signatures together um, and they submitted this petition to the East Hampton School Board. Um, and during a five minute meeting on Tuesday, the board voted no um, and the recommendation of its attorney because it found um, several flaws with the petition. Um, and they cited multiple state statutes and school board policies as to why um, they rejected it. But the the meat and potatoes of it is that the Eleanor Whitmore Center was seeking um, $250,000 because they have quite a budget shortfall of revenue um, right now. And so um, I, I spoke with Tim Frazier, the executive director of the Eleanor Whitmore Center, and he said, you know, this would have gone a long way toward closing that funding gap. Tim is actually the former principal of Southampton Intermediate School himself. He was there for 20 years, recently retired, took on the Eleanor Whitmore Center executive director position and um, modeled this petition after exactly what you were just saying, Bill, after the parish appropriation, after the Southampton Youth Services appropriation. Now, um, the East Hampton Town School uh, school board, forgive me there, um, they, they've already set their budget. They've already set their, they adopted their budget and all of the appropriations within it. So this was not 
planned for. This came up last minute, basically a couple of days before the deadline um, to submit such a petition. That's so they kind had, of interesting. Yeah. So this is like an early childhood uh, center, correct? It's, it's correct. For, it's for um, infants, toddlers, and pre-kindergarten kids. But and, do I, am I reading this correctly then? It's sort of like the, the Eleanor Whitmore Center kind of elbowed their way onto, they were trying to elbow their way onto the, the school's budget vote uh, in order to go directly to voters and say, hey, we, we want you to tell the school board to allocate a quarter of a million dollars to our program. Yeah, and they're, they, they basically reason this out by saying, you know, we have 100 kids at the center. The vast majority of them are going to go to East Hampton schools at some point in the near future, next couple of years for them. And they want to not only be able to sustain what they have, but also add um, some educational programs, maybe some space because they're on they're on leased land. So they have a great relationship usually with the East Hampton School District. They used to have all of their pre-kindergarten programs there. Um, but, you know, right now with the trend toward more districts going in-house with pre-K, you know, the Eleanor Whitmore Center, which relies heavily on tuition, um, which is, by the way, I looked up some um, average tuition rates for pre-K and infant care and, and toddler care in New York. The Eleanor Whitmore Center's rates are far below those averages. I mean, mm. around like in most cases, it could be around $800 of a difference in tuition from, and there, you know, Eleanor Whitmore Center so, is I, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm, I'm looking at your story, Chrissy, and it says that most families pay $325 per week or about $1,300 a month which is a lot lower than than state averages, which you know can be fourteen hundred a month to, to eighteen hundred a month. That's just yeah. an incredible amount of money. It I, is, I don't know how families do it. I mean, but really it's don't. still and you know a lot of it is need based <clears throat> when kids get a families get a tuition discount there at the Eleanor Whitmore Center, which can lower tuition to about a thousand dollars a month. Mm. Um, but they want to add they they would really like to add capacity because there's another hundred kids on a waiting list. Wow. Which shows you the demand for affordable um, daycare and toddler care um, in the community. And, and it's crucial too. It's, it's about such an important thing. It's about 50 years old. They started as the East Hampton Daycare. Um, and you know, they're a nonprofit organization and they, whatever, um, revenue they can't get from tuition, they have to find from donors, um, which. And, and to try and leverage out funding where they can find it, the yeah. proposal like this, let me ask you, Chrissy, can you, have you been able to sort of infer from the conversations you've had over this? Was that kind of a risky move by the Whitmore center to, to sort of go for that funding in, in this manner? Have they, have they set up sort of an adversarial kind of a situation with the school board now? Not at all. No? I don't think so. No. Um, they have, I mean, they have a very good relationship, you know, currently. And Tim Frazier, the director of the center said that this, what he purposefully said, and um, that this wasn't um, a way to kind of like, you know, put pressure on them or bully them in any way. He just was seeking as an option. He's trying to get creative and hence this type well, of petition. This wouldn't have taken money away from from the school district, I don't think. Right. I mean, the way that that those those things are set up in Southampton, it's a separate vote and separate money that's collected separately. So if if they had been able to put this on the ballot, voters would have said, do we want to do we want to um, do we do we want to approve you know, collect the, the school district would then collect the taxes for for, um, you know, for the center, but it wouldn't come out of the school district budget. So it's a separate thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's why, you know, that that relationship isn't adversarial. You know right. what I mean? Because they're not trying to compete with, you know, the funding that the school district, you know, does for its own programs, staff, kids, you know what I mean? It would have just been, you know, an additional community bonus, you know, and he said Which, he's going to try again. I was going to say it's an opportunity to to, you know, we talk a lot about affordable housing, um, but this is another real problem. And it's been uh, sort of a crisis level problem at different points for families uh, on the East End to try and find affordable health. Uh, I'm sorry, affordable child care 
uh, that allows people to work. I mean, this is this is uh, this is a problem we don't probably don't talk about enough or as much as we should. Right. And, you know, when you talk about early childhood education and, you know, that really sets a kid up for success, you know, later down the line in a school district. So, you know, studies show that when you invest in kids, really little kids, um, you know, in, in developmental programs like this, they need fewer intervention services later on in their educational, you know, trajectory. So it comes back to the district in the form of, you know, money they don't have to spend later on when the kids get kids up. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the county funds, um, you know, early interventions for kids with special needs a lot of times. So I'm not even talking about that. But, you know, in general, like kids who might just need a little bit extra support. Mm -hmm. Do you know, is is there a conversation now, Chrissy, about trying to circle back and do this again? Because a lot of the flaws sounded like legalese, that it was a matter of just sort of. Uh, the way it was done rather than what they were trying to do. Do you think they'll come back and and try and put this on a future ballot? I think so. I would anticipate that. I think that they'll go back to the drawing board and, you know, maybe make it a coordinated effort a little bit sooner uh, this time next year. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So let let the voters decide. Right. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, you don't you don't want a hundred extra, you know, uh, ballot initiatives on on the ballot, but you know, for for um, worthwhile, you know, organizations like this, why not let the voters decide? It would probably yeah. only be a couple of dollars for you know for each you know resident of the school district, right? Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. That's something we'll keep an eye on. Then uh, it's behind the headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. My Bill Sutton is uh, my co-host. We are from the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, Christine Sampson from the East Hampton Star, and Brian Cosgrove from right here at WLIW. Uh, so, Denise, uh, you have an update this week. Uh, we've talked a few times over the past few months about uh, the terrible, fatal fire that you had in Riverhead. Uh, that was in November, I believe, right? Um you had an update this week. A report came out from the Suffolk County Police Department. What did they have to say? Yeah, well, um, I foiled for that uh, in early March. Uh, foil, I submitted a Freedom of Information Law request for that in early March because I had heard that it was completed. And um, I got a, a rejection, not a rejection, but you know, saying they couldn't release it yet because it was still pending and they, and they would release it when it was resolved, when the investigation was over. And um, got it from the Suffolk County Police last week, and they um, they they confirmed really what we kind of dug up by going through records that we got through the Freedom of Information Law from the town, um, looking at um, like the drawings of the floor plans of the house. We were able to determine that the um, the third floor apartment did not have a second means of egress. Um, Refresh our memories, Denise. Just give us the basics about what happened there. Well, I, it was a very fast moving fire. And what this report describes in detail is how a discarded cigarette, believe it or not, um, um, ended up, it, they, it, they had like a plastic pretzel bucket on the, on the porch. It was a covered porch. This is a 110-year-old house. Um, three and it was stars. a house that was d- divided into apartments, right? It was divided into apartments. It was, uh, it was built as a single-family house in 1905, and um, it was divided into apartments at some point prior to the town's rental permit law, which took effect in 1980. Um, so at some point prior to that, it was divided into apartments. Um, the owner of the property now lives on the first floor, there were two apartments or lived on the first floor. There are two apartments on the second floor and a third apartment on um, and another apartment on the uh, third floor. And um, the people who perished were all in the third floor apartment. Um, and um, the, um, the report describes how someone actually a resident of the third floor apartment uh, had been out on the porch smoking a cigarette and had um just, you know, there was an ashtray and then they had um, this plastic bucket for disposing of the uh, contents of the ashtray. 
So he extinguished his uh, cigarette, or I guess thought he did, and then put it in the bucket. And this was actually witnessed by a resident of a second floor apartment who was out walking his dog. So mm. police described that interview. And um, so that apparently then that was next to this wicker love seat. So there were like plastic, it was plastic furniture, a wicker love seat with cushions on it. And the bucket, whatever caught fire in there, caught, caught the wicker ch- uh, couch on fire. And then that co- made the porch go up, the covered porch and the fire went up, up the front of the house and entered the house through likely the front door or maybe a window next to it. They weren't sure. And they could tell all of this by fire markings on the building. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting how they um, you know, described how they deduce what happened. And the fire then like kind of raced up the central staircase in the home, which Good led course. which led to the second and third floors. Um, the um, resident of the second floor who had been out walking his dog shortly after he returned to his apartment, he described um, smelling smoke. And he went downstairs to see what, you know, what was going on and saw the wicker love seat in flames, uh, grabbed the fire extinguisher, tried to put it out, uh, was unsuccessful. You know, he's yelling fire, fire, everybody get out. Um, but the people on the third floor were not able to get out because the staircase was consumed by the fire and co- actually collapsed. And a portion of the third floor actually collapsed onto the second floor. And, and these folks were trapped. It was a mother. She had two uh, uh, sons living with her who were in their 20s. And um, her daughter, who had just a a 16 year old, who had uh, just arrived a couple of weeks before from their native home in Guatemala, where she had been living with this woman's mother, with her maternal grandmother. Um, And she had just arrived there. Uh, She had just arrived in the United States a few weeks ago, a few weeks earlier. And um, so they were they all like that was like the last place that wasn't in flames on the third floor. And they had all like uh, gone to that bedroom and um, it was a front bedroom. And and that's where they were trapped and, and died. No, that's just a just um, an awful tragedy. But what's the, the takeaway then, Denise, is that this pretty much confirms what your reporting had found. Right. Uh, yeah, that, it, it that did. Which this you know, apartment of, wasn't this apartment didn't have the 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 legal. Um, requirement for a second egress out of the apartment, but it's partly because it was an apartment that had existed for years and years prior to zoning, right? Or prior to the rules. You know, so that, that's something that is still kind of murky actually, because unfortunately the town's records are kind of murky and inconsistent. And we described this in the story that we wrote last month um, about how like, the, the town had a uh, one of the town building department um, employees, the building permits examiner, um, had written a letter. It's called a letter of pre-existing use. So when a house pre-exists zoning, you get this letter of pre-existing use, and that described it as um, a um, three-family unit. Um, and then, and that was in 1997. So that would have been the two apartments on the second floor and the one apartment on on the first floor. And um, the town had actually issued violations and um, a notice to like uh, stop using the third floor as an apartment because it didn't, you know, it didn't conform to the the code uh, for these reasons. They actually wrote it up and failed the inspection and ordered, it had been Actually, at that point, when they issued this, it had been the third floor had been divided into two apartments. This was a very big building, actually. Mm-hmm. I should mention that. And um, so they, you know, said you can't use this as an apart as a dwelling space. It has to revert to storage, and that was in two thousand and nine. And um, no, I'm sorry, that was prior to two thousand nine. It was written up again in two thousand and nine, and after it was written up again in two thousand and nine. That same building department employee wrote another letter of pre-existing use saying that it was a four-family dwelling. The, um, the thing that strikes me about all this, Denise, is that we spend a lot of time uh, at all of our news organizations talking about zoning and talking about codes 
and and all this dry stuff and that's something that people talk about oh it's just you know it's such dry stuff to be writing but it matters but it yeah. matters yeah, and it it matters. really these things so, these things take a toll on lives when when, when they're not uh and like after not, after that second pre-existing newsletter that said oh this is a four family written by the same person then the town started actually issuing rental permits because the town has this rental permit law for that third story apartment um so it's really unclear like what you know and, and the, yeah no i was gonna say i have a question for you does um for a rental permit in the town of riverhead to be issued do they have to inspect that first yes they do okay. and they can they can actually and this is where you know with our interviews we kind of got a lot of kind of you know sidestepping but um you know they um they were telling us that they being the town attorney and the chief, um, the chief inspector, who actually is the person who failed the third floor in 2009. Uh, they said that because we were questioning about this second form of egress, which is required by the New York State Fire Code, actually. So, you know, um, and they were like, well, because it was pre-existing, we didn't have to look for that. We didn't we didn't have to look to see if there was a second floor. So, I mean, I think there's a big question whether it was actually pre-existing or not. And I feel like this is going to all be sorted out in, you know, civil litigation between the survivors of the people who were killed and and um maybe has there been has there been litigation filed, Denise? Not yet. But not yet. But it's coming. But those, is there any those, uh, those really? rules, I'm just going to say those rules have to change. I mean, the whole pre-existing oh. thing, not not requiring, you know, inspections or not requiring, um, you know, them to meet the current code. I mean, that for safety that, reasons. Yeah, the I mean, you know, code is there. That's the, so know. apparently like the state law allows pre-existing, you know, structures to be grandfathered. And um, the town is now considering uh, Councilman Ken Rothwell, who is also a volunteer firefighter for many years. Um, he introduced this bill that would say, you know, there's no pre-existing with this. You know, if you have no. a third floor dwelling space, you need to provide a second form of egress and um, sprinklers. But, um, that's but, you know, and I imagine I imagine that meets with some opposition, though, too, from from people who who, you know, from builders and from folks who own these properties who say, hey, I've been renting. Yeah. And, and, and you know, at a time we're talking about the need for affordable housing, you're asking me to put in $30,000 of sprinklers and yeah. and all of this. And I can't afford to do that. So you're just going to lose that affordable apartment. I mean, it, it's, oh, right. it's apparently at the current time, there are not there are only kind of like a handful of third floor apartments that the town knows of anyway. I mean, you know, certainly there are buildings that have these third floors and they have, you know, essentially the third floor is like attic space. There were eaves, you know, yeah. Um, and, and that's what this, you know, what this dwelling was like. So um, it's just it's a terrible tragedy all the way around. I mean, the, the homeowner who lived there, um, uh, you know, we, we have a fair number of um, dwellings in downtown Riverhead that are very substandard and that are owned by uh, out of town slumlords. Honestly, I mean, like that's, you know, that's a big problem in downtown Riverhead. A lot of the substandard housing is owned by absentee landlords. And they don't do much to them. This was not that kind of a building, you know. I mean, the, the person actually lived there, the owner lived there, and it was, you know, it seemed to be well maintained. Um, so I don't know, but uh, you know, it's really a tragedy. I mean, you know, she ended up homeless. Apparently, according to the police report, she didn't have insurance on the property. Oh. So yeah. Um, but I mean, and, it shows that you have a situation that's not the most egregious. And yet you ended up with a with a loss of life at this scale. I mean, it, it just shows the stakes that are involved um, and, and how important it is to have appropriate regulations that are enforced. I mean, her, her rental permits had actually expired um, in March of um, 2020. So the property had not been inspected since 2018. Um, but like they, the police interviewed the tenants on the second floor and, you know, confirmed that they had operating smoke detectors. Um, the property owner said there were hardwired smoke detectors on the fourth floor. Nobody mm -hmm. reported hearing them, any of them going off or anything like that. But if you've ever been 
uh, had, unfortunately, I was at a fire scene where a house was fully engulfed in flames. It's loud. Yeah. Like when that happens and it happens that quickly, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised that they didn't hear any you know, smoke detectors going off or anything. It's a it's a loud roar. Um, I give you full credit, Denise, for staying on this story, because I think it's a really important one. You know, sometimes an event like that happens in a community. And uh, I think there's a tendency sometimes to report on it and then walk away. But very clearly, there was so much more information that needed to come out of this awful event. And uh, I just give you give you full credit for staying on top of it. I got I to say also, uh, we I got to give credit to and we worked w- with um, uh, Maria Delmar Pedro Breno and uh, Juliana Huglin at to Prensa Local. Um, yeah. Uh, the Spanish uh, language uh, newspaper, online newspaper for the East End. Uh, Maria, um, she, we had a Spanish language edition for a while, and she was our Spanish edition editor. Um, and they really, uh, without them, uh, we could not have, because of our own language deficiencies, could not have uh, really spoken with and interviewed the surviving family members and, and friends of, of the, the people who perished in they, so, they they yeah. helped us in in uh, a couple of weeks ago in reporting um, a, a fire in, in Hampton Bays that, yeah. that left a lot of people homeless and they do a, a really nice job. Um, yeah, like, well, they're really. Uh, they, they got nobody, nobody was hurt in, in that fire, but a lot of people were left homeless and yeah. and um, and Maria and her staff were able to uh, to talk to some of those people and, and tell that story. It was really important. Yeah, I mean, we got all of the records and stuff and Alec and I spent a long time trying to make sense of them, frankly, because it were really like, yeah, uh, the building department itself had a fire a number of years ago and lost <laughs> a lot of their records. Um, so there was that. But, you know, in any event, the town is looking at, um, you know, changing the housing code, changing the rental permit code in other ways as well. And uh, including making the term of the rentals one year instead of two, it's going to require a lot more code enforcement inspections. It's going to require the town to hire more code enforcement officers. So we'll see what happens when it comes time to you know kind of put the money where the mouth is because you know it's costly. And but the town needs needs to do something about it. So I have to say, Denise, your um, ability to work with and obtain and work with those public documents is really amazing yeah, that, to me that's in denise's wheelhouse yeah no question yeah i i so appreciate it as something that we can learn from it's in my eyes just of paramount importance so thank you so i mean it's very very cool that like you know there's this law that says they have to give you their records you have to kind of get the finesse of how to phrase them you know like you yeah. can't be too vague you can't be too specific you gotta you know and sometimes it takes like more than one attempt to get what you're looking for um, a lot of times these folks really don't want to give them over <laughs> um so that's an issue and then if they don't comply as we know we've discussed this uh joe and i like if they don't comply then you know what do you do i mean the only recourse under the law is to actually sue the municipality, like a, a legit lawsuit that, you know, in Supreme state Supreme court. So, and having, and having been through that, it can be a very uh, unsatisfying process. No question. Yeah. And Denise, I'm curious, does your law degree help you uh, in sorting through documents like that? Um, do you, do you find that, or is it something, I, I feel like to a large degree, it's just a matter of having to put in the legwork to sit down and go through them and, and take the time there. You know. you know, it absolutely is. I mean, I don't look, I, I have a law degree. I did practice in the, the realm of real estate and zoning. I actually taught a course in zoning, believe it or not, at um, this is how nuts I am, uh, but at the community college um, years ago. But it's like, you know, yes, I would say it helps me, but no, it's not essential to do this. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. Um, it, it just requires, it's a lot of like detail and a lot of, you know, got to stick with it. And I was in a seminar recently for reporters about, you know, how, you know, you really like should make it a practice of submitting FOIL requests like every single week, yeah. <laughs> you know, finding um, something to, to FOIL. There, you know, I mean, there are lots yeah. of things that are going on that, uh, you know, they don't necessarily announce, let's say, <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, Christy, that, that's time and, and labor intensive, isn't it? Going through documents like that. But but it it really can, and, and there's no guarantee it's actually going to 
pan out into anything worth reporting. But boy, when it does, it really does. It really does. And, you know, I I just give you all the credit there for legendary work. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, Christine. As I said, that's right right in your wheelhouse, Denise. We always thank you for that stuff. You set the the standard for that. Uh, It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Uh, Christine Sampson from the East Hampton Star and Brian Cosgrove from WLIW. And Brian, I want to move the conversation. You know, we sort of started talking about affordable housing there, but you you and I and Bill are always having these conversations about uh, the need for affordable housing. And this week we reported that Southampton Town, at least, has started down a path now uh, where they're going to set hearings on their plan for how the community housing fund money might be used. Now, this is a proposal for a half percent uh, tax on real estate transfers patterned after the Community Preservation Fund. And this would provide a dedicated fund that could be used to fund affordable housing uh, measures in Southampton Town. And I believe uh, Supervisor Jay Schneiderman said that it can bring in at the current pace, something like $15 million a year. So it's real money that could be used uh, for affordable housing. I'm not, the problem now is the five towns are each going to have an opportunity to develop plans and approve this tax. I wonder when push comes to shove, how many of the five towns are going to be able to get those votes together. I, I mean, because I think we all agree it's a crisis, but the narrative around affordable housing gets really complicated and people people start to get edgy when you talk about a tax and then they start to get edgy about, well, where are you going to build this affordable housing? I mean, it, it, it really does get very complicated very quickly. Yeah, it does. It does get, but like you said, I think, um, I think we're in crisis mode here. That's the way I see it. And I try not to, uh, you know, be over the top about things, but for the past couple of years, this is a huge problem. And the pandemic has, accelerated things, as you guys are well aware of. I've been out here since 97, and my perception of the East End has been that from 97 to, let's say, 2017 or 2018, there's been a lot of progress. Real estate has gone up. There's been you know problems. But the past three years has accelerated twice as much as the previous 20-odd years with the problems we're facing now with affordable housing and the infrastructure and traffic. And and as you guys know, affordable housing and traffic go hand in hand because if people can't live here, they got to drive here because there's a lot of work here. So the thing is, is that I, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have uh, my place, um, you know, and I just got enough and I'm not complaining. I'm just saying my situation. I was just I had to go. But my first mortgage approval was declined. So I had to go to another and I got and I got it. Thank goodness. And that was a combination of I happened to be in the Riverhead town. That was when they put, you know, they considered the taxes on top of my mortgage payment. My first mortgage guy said, no, you don't qualify. And then I got another one. My thought was would be this about it. First of all, I get the idea of, you know, we, we're getting taxed to death, especially Long Island and the East End. But it's a half a percent. And from what I understand, and you guys know better than me, that the open space tax, which is 2%, and I think each township might have a little different uh, bar on where they start to imply it you know, uh, ask for mm-hmm. it. Some are 100, 150, 200, and then it applies to your purchase. And by the way, they changed those to to make it a little less onerous when they added the water quality uh, aspect to the to the community preservation fund too. They made it so that fewer people were being taxed, but go, right. go ahead. So my thought is this, and I, you know, from what I understand, the open the open space tax has been a great success. I personally think it's a wonderful thing. But I think considering the fact that equity, especially in the past couple of years, has gone up so much, they should raise that bar on the 2%. Because that's going to, if they don't raise the bar on that, that in turn is going to affect affordable housing for folks kind of like me who just get by, 
I was able to buy pre-pandemic. I couldn't afford it now. And again, I'm not complaining. It's just the way things are. Things change. So, so what I'm trying to say is that I wonder if the open and the open space, I understand they have a nice nest egg there and they're doing tremendous work. Maybe they would consider raising the ceiling a little bit. And when they start to apply that 2%, then they could bring in the, the half a percent for affordable housing. And also on top, look, I know that I don't know a lot about it. So this is kind of high in the sky stuff from me. But the other thing would be that, is it possible that there is some open space that might be, I know this is, this is contradictory of open space, but maybe they have some par- a partial or two that they would consider contributing to development for affordable housing. I know it's, it goes against the whole thing, but I guess you, you get the gist of, of what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, didn't our, our legislator, Bridget Fleming, in the county recently propose a bill that would um, give municipalities a clue as to when parcels come up for sale, right? Right, the 72 H parcels, which are which are which is land that the county has seized for non-payment of, of taxes, um, and and her bill would create a database that would um, identify all those parcels on on the east end and let both the municipalities and organizations like Habitat for Humanity that has come in and utilized parcels like that to build affordable housing to do that. And I think that was a, a fantastic idea on, on Bridget's part, um, because I think a lot of these parcels, the county, the county was 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 acquiring these parcels that, you know, from homeowners who hadn't paid their taxes. And then they would either just sit there or somebody else would 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 come in. The county would sell it to somebody else for a different person purpose for redevelopment or, or whatever, rather than focusing on the affordable housing. Part, por- portion of that. Yeah, I mean, they're generally they're generally like auctioned off, you know, right. like so at, at literally at an auction. So, I, uh, legislative Fleming's bill, I think, is a really good idea, um, and and could do a lot for that because um, that I mean, we've had a few of those houses in Riverhead where you know their habitat houses or they were parcels that uh, the town developed actually the community development agency in Riverhead for affordable housing purposes. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a that's a great tool. But, um, you know, we we don't in Riverhead, we don't have like the nest egg, as you put it, Brian, for, um, you know, that that they're sitting on in like Southampton, uh, but not by a long stretch. And um, they're just uh, they're actually just getting solvent again with the open space money because they borrowed against it to purchase lands. Right. All the towns did. Pardon? Yeah, I, I think all the I think all the towns did, and I think that while CPF was super successful, that that you know they so so it was borrowing against future revenues and, and all that, and and I think and the market crashed. Yeah, and and I think some towns got in in trouble with that a little bit. And you know, Brian, I had a conversation recently with Fred Thiel, the state assemblyman, who really sort of was it was played a big role in putting together the community preservation fund, and he made the point that. There isn't this giant pool of money sitting around that people think that it a lot of that is there's been money borrowed. And, and he made the same point Denise just made that it's a very different situation in Southampton and East Hampton than it is in the other five towns. But even in those towns, there there are there's money already allocated to future debt payments on right. purchases that were made at the very beginning while that while that land was still available. But what I'm fascinated by is the idea that you said, which I think you, you're saying what a lot of people are saying, which is, well, maybe we should reconsider on some of those parcels that have been bought over the years, and they might be better for affordable housing rather than for open space. And it's it's interesting, as an aside, I, I, don't, think, parcel, I, I don't think you could do that. Though. I don't I think mean, you it's... can do that, but it's interesting because I can think of a parcel that's within a short walk of my house here in Hampton Bays that was purchased with CPF funds. There had been a proposal on that property for a sort of a housing and retail combination development. And the town was sort of, meh, they didn't think they wanted to do that. And so the, the option became, well, we'll turn it into a, we'll turn it into open space instead. It's really sort of, I, I don't like to say wasted because I think 
that's open space that reduces the density, which was the whole point of the CPF. But boy, that's a parcel that would be perfect to build some affordable housing on too. It's right along Montauk Highway. It's it's tucked back a little bit. So these choices that were made with the CPF, um, I think because there was money to spend, I think that they they bought up a lot of properties that in retrospect might really be good properties for affordable so like housing. Like they weren't necessarily purchased because of environmental sensitivity or things like that. You're saying, hmm. yeah. I they think were, that's the case. Yeah. I think they were I, purchased because they were available. Yeah, I think you know, you know the thing is, it's, and thank you for you know, I did have this and uh, thought that there was more in this nest egg or whatever in the townships, um, but I know they have been able to buy nice parcels of land. And thank you for for telling me about that. I appreciate that. I wonder, though, how about, you know, again, going back to the fact that maybe it should be uh, the open space and maybe even the affordable, um, the, the proposed, you know, half a percent. Maybe they should it should go with the real estate market. Right. Because the when they first implemented it, I don't know how many years has the open space tax been around a long time. 19, now, right? 1999, I believe it went. OK, in. 1999. Equity is way up, but it's still at the same level, right? After whatever it is, 200,000 in East Hampton or what, you know, then you have to start to address it. Equity is way up. So maybe they should address with equity that it should, they should raise it. So that you should, you know, after 350 or whatever, because- Well, I, I think, uh, I think Brian, part of the, the affordable housing um, bill that was just passed, it does raise the, the exemptions um for 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 the tax so it, it's going to collect now it, it'll be two two and a half percent but it raises the exemption i don't have the numbers in front of me but i think in like southampton and east hampton the exemption currently is two hundred and fifty thousand. it raises it to it would raise it to four hundred thousand um you know but so, so the first four hundred the first four hundred thousand dollars of any purchase would be exempt from from either tax where from either tax from where it's currently uh, 250. So, so it does address that a little bit. Yeah, I think the, open, Thiel, the, open, the open space tax does address that. Fred Thiel kind of pitched it that way is this is sort of an overall tax cut right? For, uh, as far as the impact on, on purchases, but in creating this extra fund. But, you know, Fred made a really interesting point that I think is crucial for us to, to understand here. When you think back to uh, those of us who were around when the Community Preservation Fund uh, was enacted. That was a, a measure that came with dozens of environmental organizations, business organizations, mm. supporting, coming together, pitching. Um, and they didn't come. They didn't come together. They didn't come together quickly, though. I mean, no, it, 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 took, took, it took a couple of years. Yeah. This is we're you know it's April, and we're going to be potentially voting on this in November. And the towns have to come up with a plan that they have to figure out how they're going to spend it. And they have to pitch that plan to voters all in that time. It just seems like a, a it's it's going to be a, a heavy lift. And, and I'm not sure all the voters, as much as they agree there's a crisis, are going to agree on the, the solution to it. Yeah, that's a tough thing because you, you don't want to kick it down the road and keep keep kicking it down the road when we're in such a crisis right now that, yeah. that I think you want to start. You know, you're not talking about just $15 million in the first year. From the day that it's approved by voters shortly after that, then the town's going to be able to borrow again against future revenue like they did with CPF money. And if there are projects or programs that, that need funding, then then you can immediately start to work on those. And, and you gotta you can't think of it as a $15 million cap because that's all they're going to collect in the first year. It, it'll be the same as the CPF where where you'll have you'll have access to some borrowing and and you know the idea that the future money will will support those programs. And and I agree with you. It might be a bit of a hard sell, but I, at the same time, I'm like, you know, we, we we talk about affordable housing. We've been talking about it, you know, as as Brian says for for 20 years, and and you know, <clears throat> we do a little bit here and there, but but uh, we don't do a lot. And I think we need to really get get going with it. You know, it's a chance to. You know, we're. I think we may talk about this editorially this week, um, but. One of the, the interesting things here is one of the focuses 
I think has to be on using some of the existing housing stock for affordable housing rather than just thinking we're going to build a lot of affordable housing and solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And I love the ideas that are on the table in at least in East Hampton and Southampton town where the towns would use this CPA, I'm sorry, CHF money uh, to actually buy equity in properties so that they're, you know, just to pluck a number out of, let's just divide it in half. Let's say the town takes a 50% share in someone's purchase of a house. So now an $800,000 house becomes an $400,000 house. The town owns half of that, that house basically while that family is in it. And then when that family goes to sell, they split the proceeds with the town 50-50 again. And that means you've protected that equity. Because one of the problems with affordable housing over the years is somebody who's in an affordable housing program doesn't really get to build that equity that they can take with them when they leave affordable housing to go to the next mm -hmm. level. So it, it allows them to do that. The town would actually get their money back eventually when that's sold. It would allow the properties to be all over towns. You know, the, you know, it doesn't put it all in one place. I think it's a, it's a key part of this, but it's also, that's part of the problem here is there, there are messages that need to, to get out to voters. to convince I, I, so, them. so we had um, another shameless plug. So we had an, an express sessions a couple of weeks ago on, on affordable housing um, video of which is available on 27east.com <laughs> if you want to take a look. But during during that session, Curtis Highsmith, um, you know, housing guy from from Southampton Town, he talked about that. I mean, they all talked about these different plans, Joe, and I think you're right. But what 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 Curtis said is is you you've got to look at the whole picture. You can't focus just on existing housing. You can't focus on just accessory apartments. You, you know, you've, you've got to focus on there's there's three levels of people who need affordable housing. There's the doctors and the lawyers and the teachers who can no longer afford to live here. And the plan that you're talking about, Joe, might help them out. There, there's people who are maybe more blue collar workers, wages, um, and, and you've got to help them out either with housing or apartments. But then there's also people who are working at Starbucks and, and McDonald's and, um, and, and, you know, and, and lower end jobs that you've got to provide. Then there's no apartments for them. There's nowhere for them to live. And, um, you, you know, so I, I think you need to look at, at at all three levels there and you need to come up with a plan that's going to provide for, you know, for, for everybody. And I think maybe that's, Absolutely. that's a good way to sell it too. I think he was hard in saying that. It's a comprehensive problem. Is. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that the CHF as written, you know, as sets it up it, as there is room for that type of diversity. Sure. You know what exactly. I mean? So it's, it's a comprehensive problem that needs a comprehensive solution. I think right. that's the bottom line. So. Uh, before we wrap up here, there's a couple of topics we want to hit real quickly. Chris, you wanted to talk about uh, an event that's coming up at Bookhampton. Yeah, Since we've so, been, this is shameless plug day here on. Shameless plug day, and I'm not actually affiliated with it in any way. It's oh, just okay. That Bookhampton and the Hamptons Observatory are presenting um, Dr. Avi Loeb, an astrophysicist who um, is the head of the Galileo Project at Harvard, which systematically searches the skies for technological interstellar objects, basically oh, alien he's, technology. He's um, the guy who who thought, who said that the one uh, projectile that came through our solar system may have been an, an alien vessel, right? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I'm like a shameless, like self-declared space nerd. Like, good, good for you. I, oh, I, I thought just, his arguments were fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm I signed up for it. I might even, um, you know, sorry to my my fellow star staff, skip a school board meeting to watch it because <laughs> I just, you know, it just go go to bookhampton.com and sign up for it because it's so, so cool. You know, that is that is really actually something I would stuff. love to I would love to hear about. So and, and I, I've left a couple of minutes here because I think it's you know, we can sort of self-indulgently take a moment and uh, give some a shout out to a guy that we all know and I think we all appreciate, and that's Brian Boyhan. Uh, he is publisher emeritus, I believe, of the Sag Harbor Express. I think it is now he's semi-retired, although he's still uh, crucial in putting together our magazines, Express magazines. Um, he was 
uh, voted into the Press Club of Long Island uh, Hall of Fame for uh, Long Island journalists. Uh, he's going to be inducted in, uh, I believe it's on June 2nd. Uh, we all know Brian. Chrissy, you worked for Brian. I've worked with Brian. He's my golf partner. Uh, he's a good buddy. I, I am so, th- one of the great things about our merger with the Sag Harbor Express was that I finally got to work with a bunch of people who I've always had great affection for. And Brian's one of them. Uh, very deserving, right? I mean, he's he is a, an institution, I think, in community journalism. I worked for the Sag Harbor Express for a couple of years and Brian constantly pushed me to be better and do my best. So I really um, have a great respect for him. And Brian, this this is a, you you've been working with Brian for years, right? I have been, yeah. When I when I came out here and got the, my first radio job at EHM in '97, I inherited this wonderful um, feature called Paper Talk, and that's where I had the pleasure to meet you, Joe, after Peter Booty for the first year, and then you moved out here, and I've done it with Denise, and uh, I, I did it with David Rattray for a while. But I think I've been doing it with Brian almost nonstop for 25 years on a Friday. And he is just so much fun to talk to. And it's so informative. Uh, And he is just a tremendous person, not only. And I can say this about all of you. And I mean that. And I know you I don't want to embarrass you guys, but the the papers out here are just tremendous. And you guys know that because every year at the New York Press Association, you guys walk away with a disproportionate amount of awards for the area you cover, considering all of New York State. So that's it's not. It's not, you know, it's true what I'm saying. You know, we, we could sh- we could show fact on it, but it, he's just so great to talk to. He's so animated. And he, you know what? He's really the perfect guy for a Friday. You know, when, I, when I'm when I'm talking to somebody, I look forward to talking to you and Bill on Wednesdays. I talk to Joe Workmeister on Thursdays and we'll, we'll probably increase it down the road. But um, Brian Boyhan is just an asset to the East End. And I, I just love the guy like I love you guys. Brian, Brian adores Sag Harbor, and I think Sag Harbor adores him back. I think he's just yes. very much uh, woven into the fabric of the Sag Harbor community. You know, the other thing about him that people need to understand is, I, and I say this sincerely, I think he is one of the leading designers right now uh, at work in print media. I, you know, he's, he's a guy that's turned his focus to that later in his career and studies it and puts it into effect with our magazines. And I'm just regularly blown away. It's, uh, you know, it, it's working with a legend and I think we all have had the fortune to, to, to know Brian and congratulations, congratulations to him. We're all very happy for him. Yeah, Brian. Congratulations. So uh, we're out of time. Uh, that's this week's edition of Behind the Headlines. Uh, thank you to our guests, Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star. Brian Cosgrove from WLIW and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bill Sutton, my co-host, thank you. Uh, you. We're actually going to be off next week, but we will be back in two weeks with another conversation here on Behind Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.